Over 50 years ago, the year before Beverly and I were married, 1971, it was a very popular movie. Many of you have seen it. It's hard to believe that it's over 50 years old now. Topal starred in the musical Fiddler on the Roof. And of course, one of the great songs there is what? Tradition. I don't want to talk about tradition today, though. I want to talk about his family. They live in a little Jewish village on Atevka, which is in southwest Russia at the turn of the century, not this century, the last century, 1905. There's turmoil and change everywhere, and this is the basis for his singing the song Tradition. All the traditions are being blown up, and he's distressed about it. They have five daughters. The eldest is about to marry an older butcher in, in town, and she doesn't want to, and, you know... Uh, Tevius told her this is her lot in life. And then in the midst of that, as they think about the new world and the change, Tevia then turns to Golda, his wife. It's a new world, he says, a new world. Love. Golda, do you love me? Do I what? Do you love me? Do I love you with our daughters getting married and this trouble in the town? You're upset. You're worn out. Go inside. Go lie down. Maybe it's indigestion. Ah, oh, no, Golda. I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? You're a fool. I know. But do you love me? Do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked your cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? Tevya, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. Golda, I was shy. Tevya, I was nervous. Golda, so was I. Then Tevya says, but my father and my mother said we'd learn to love each other. And now I'm asking Golda, do you love me? I'm your wife. I know, Golda, but do you love me? Do I love him? For 25 years, I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? Ah, then you love me. I suppose I do. And I suppose I love you, too. And together, they close their duet. It doesn't change a thing, but even so, after 25 years, it's nice to know. Six times in this song and in this interchange, Tevya asks Golda the question, do you love me? Now, each time he does that, he doesn't change the words, do you love me, four words. But every time he does it, he probes a little more deeply. 
And every time he does it, Golda understands that there's a different question that is being asked. You see, you don't have to change the words to change the meaning. Jesus today asks Peter in the passage the same question. He asks him half as many times, three times. You see, it's the third post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to the disciples in the Gospel of John. He's met behind closed doors with them, and he has revealed himself to them as the resurrected Lord. He's eaten with them so that they know that he's not a ghost. (laughs) He's confirmed that he's risen, and then he (sighs) breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit. He has met a second time because Thomas was not there, and Thomas is in the room, and he reveals himself to Thomas. And Thomas then concludes, all doubt is removed, and he says, my Lord and my God. This is the third incident, and they're in Galilee. You see, the disciples have returned to Galilee, and they're about their secular business again, their secular vocation, fishing. Seven of them are identified in the passage. Well, not identified, but enumerated. Five of them are identified. Peter and James and John and Nathaniel, and also this Thomas who has just affirmed the Lordship of Christ, plus two others, and we don't, we're not given their names, but almost certainly they are probably Andrew and Philip, Andrew that would go along with Peter, of course, and Philip who had brought Nathaniel to the circle, and they also abide in the village of Bethsaida, which is a fishing village on the shore of the sea. They're not explicitly identified. It's interesting, if that's correct, if I'm correct in my assessment, it's the six that were in the original circle at the beginning of the Gospel of John, plus Thomas. You see, they're out there fishing, and you know the story. They haven't caught anything, and Jesus is on the shore, and they don't know it's Jesus, and he directs them where to cast their net then, and they haul in a large catch of fish, 153 by number, at Jesus' direction. It's very much like an early incident in the ministry of Jesus in Luke's gospel. It's the only place it's recorded where they also had a great draft of fishes that tore the net because Jesus directed him to where the fish were. And then Jesus cooks the fish and some bread over charcoal on the seashore. And they recognize Jesus. And then he gives them an invitation. This is the third Pivotal, imperative invitation to come in the Gospel of John. The first one was after an unknown disciple, probably John, and Andrew have seen him. Come. They say, well, where are you going? He says, what? Come and you will see. (laughs) There's a call to action. Come, follow me. And Andrew and John become his disciples. In chapter 7, Verse 37, he is in the temple at the Feast of Dedication, and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And this is followed by uh, an exhortation to action once again. It's not come follow. Here it is come, and therefore you will produce what? Living water from your innermost being. You see, both of these invitations result in a call to action. And in this one, he tells them to come and have breakfast. Come for renewed fellowship with me. Come for restored fellowship with me. But the action has yet been described. 
They're going to eat with him, but the action to which he is calling them is yet to be described. It's, it's in this text, in verses 15 through 17. John 21. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Simon Barjona, do you love me more than these? And Simon then said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my lambs. And then Simon said to him again a second time, or Jesus said to Simon a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he, that is, Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. May God bless the reading of his word and let's have a seat. You know, before we actually look at what I think are two or three important takeaways from the text, I think we need to look at some interpretive issues in the background. There are three of them I'd like for us to examine. First of all, what is the purpose of this passage? Why does John include this passage here? Well, many scholars, and maybe not scholars, suggest that what Jesus is doing is he's restoring Peter. You've heard the story many times. You've heard it taught this way. You see, Peter, of course, has denied Jesus how many times, congregation? Three times. And Jesus is giving Peter an opportunity, basically, three times to repent of his denial. Jesus' threefold command uh, is an overt society when he says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, which is what it says in the King James Version. That's an overt sign of his forgiveness because he has confidence in Peter to tell him to go feed his sheep. Some reject this idea that it's not really about restoring Peter. You know, one commentator says, well, in the synoptics, we know that Jesus and Peter have met individually. And so surely by now they're reconciled, you know. So that's not what's going on here. There's, there's a problem with that. They have met personally. We know that Jesus met him individually, met Peter individually at the tomb. But there's no explicit evidence that this restoration has occurred. Hmm. In my opinion, I think that Jesus is in this process forgiving Peter, restoring fellowship, instilling confidence in Peter in his ministry again. But I think it's not just for Peter. It doesn't say that he pulls Peter off to the side. I think that the other disciples are overhearing everything that's being said. For it wasn't just Peter that abandoned Jesus. He's the one that verbally denied Jesus, but the rest of them were not to be seen except the one that Jesus loved, and that was probably John out in the crowd. So I think this is for all the disciples. I think there's a further, a further purpose here, though, beyond that. In the imperative come, we've seen twice before that there was an action that resulted from the coming. Come and follow me. Come and produce living water out of your innermost being. What is the action then that is required of these that he's speaking to? You see, it fulfills what I would call the Great Commission in John. 
And that is in chapter 20, verse 21 that we talked about last week. There's a great commission in Matthew, of course, in 28. We talked about that last week. The commission, the command is to do what? To make disciples. There's a commission in Mark, the 16th chapter, and the command is to do what? Preach the gospel. There's a commission in Luke 24 and Acts 1, the Lucan commission, and that is to what? You will be my witnesses. And I think what is happening here, Jesus in John 20, 21 gives them the commission. As the Father sent me, I do what? As the Father sent me, I do what? So send I you. There's the commission. And now he gives the action that is required. What are you going to do? Are you going to make disciples? Are you going to preach? Are you going to be witnesses? And it's very clear. He says to Peter and all the rest of them three times, what? Feed my sheep. That's interesting because Jesus has just done what? He's cooked them breakfast on the charcoal fire, and he has fed them. He has set the example. Just as when he washed their feet after the Lord's Supper, he then says, what I have done, do to one another. I've set the example. He set the example for them. He has fed them his sheep, and now he tells them, I send you to do what? To be a sheep feeder. Hmm. So I think that's one issue that we need to deal with. What was the purpose? A second interpretive issue has to do with the meaning behind the language that is used. You know, some sermons, and I'm guilty of this as much as anybody, may sound sometimes like a Greek class. You know, this word means this and this word means that. Well, sometimes that's necessary. It's necessary today, okay? There are two words for love that are used here, and you know this. You've heard it many times. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus asked Peter, do you agapao? Well, that's not really the form, but the, the word is agapao. Do you love me? With what kind of love? You know that. Agape love. The godly, unconditional, sacrificial, unending love that has no ulterior motive. It's because God is love. He can do nothing other than love. Do you love me like that? And in verses 15 and 16, Peter answers, Yes, Lord, you know that I, and you know the word. Phileo is the root word. You know that I love you like a brother. Humanly, I love you like a brother. Within a limited social circle, it's a love that's reciprocal. I love you expecting you to love me back. You see, it's not completely selfless. It's love used for a benefit, and we all do that. And then in verse number 17, Jesus shifts. He doesn't say, do you love me, agapao? He then settles for saying, okay, do you just phileo? Do you just love me as a brother? And Peter responds, well, you know I do. There are two words that are used for feed. In verses 15, first time, and in the third time, in verse 17, it's bosco. And that's the word that is almost always in the New Testament and the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament used for literally feeding. That is, giving food stuff to. That is, providing fodder. You give food to be chewed on, literally. In verse number 16, a different word is used, poimino. And it's a root word for shepherd. It's used often more figuratively, and it means to shepherd. It means to tend, to guide, to nurture. So there are two different words that are used there. And then there are two words that are used for sheep. Arneon is used in verse 15 the first time, and it means not just lambs, but little lambs. It's the diminutive form. Tiny baby lambs, almost like newborn. 
But then the last two instances in verses 16 and 17, Jesus uses the word probaton. And that is the mature grazing sheep that can stand on his or her own four legs and graze. And in verse number 17, Jesus uses a more intense form. He doesn't just say my sheep, he says my dear sheep. Now, why do I go into all of that? Because there are two different interpretive approaches to this passage. One would say that there's a deeper meaning that Jesus is trying to communicate in the word shifts in this passage. He's trying to teach Peter to move from phileo, that is brotherly love, to godly love. There's a progression from feeding, literally, lambs to nurturing sheep. And at the end, finally, Jesus accepts the fact that Peter phileos. He doesn't agapao. He accepts that, but he still challenges Peter to not to nurture the sheep, but to feed the sheep. Some would say, look, there's no deeper meaning here. After all, Jesus and Peter were speaking almost certainly in what language? In Aramaic, probably with no subtle distinctions. And, and even when you look at the account written by John, which is in Greek, often well, not often, but several times. John uses the word agapao and phileho almost interchangeably. They would say Jesus is simply restoring Peter and that's it. Don't read much more into this passage than that. With the repeated appeals to love him and to feed his sheep. Do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Well, what do I think about it? I think this. I'm pretty certain that, yes, they were speaking Aramaic. And, and I do think that Peter gets really frustrated with listening to Jesus say the same words over and over again, okay? Now, they may have been speaking Greek, but probably it was Aramaic, same word. Just like Tevya. Golda, do you love me? But every time that he said that, he meant something different. And they'd been married how long? 25 years. And trust me, when you've been married 25 years, when your spouse says something one way and then says it this, with the same words but with a different intonation, you know it. Especially if your spouse gives you the look when she says it. Peter knows that something is going on here, okay? Yes, Jesus was restoring Peter, I think, but he is also dealing with some deeper spiritual truths. And here's another thing. It is true that John wrote the account in Greek, but who is guiding the writing of the Greek? It is the Holy Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit tells John which words to write, arneon or probaton, phileo or agapao, the Holy Spirit knows what Jesus intended and it is being communicated accurately. And I think we must take it seriously. It goes something like this. If you love me like God loves, then you should feed my little lambs. If you love me like God loves you, then I want you to shepherd and nurture and guide the whole flock, all the sheep. If, if you love me even as much as a brother, you still have a responsibility, and that is to feed, literally to feed my dear sheep. 
So that's a second interpretive issue. I think that's really what the passage is saying. The third one is this. When he says, do you love me more than these, what does it mean? What are these? Well, some would say it's the boats and the nets. Peter, are you in love with going back to your old profession? Are you going to leave it and serve me? Well, there's, there's a problem with that. I, you know, I, I don't, you know, chastise or I don't rebuke in my mind, Peter, for doing that. They had to go back. They had to provide for themselves. It doesn't mean that they're intent on abandoning their ministry. I don't know if that's what Jesus is saying. Some would say, it's these other disciples. Do you prefer the fellowship of the other disciples to my fellowship? I find that incredible. But, you know, what may be happening here, some would say, is they form this little clique of about six or seven, and Peter's going to be their cultic leader. You know, does he love that more than following Jesus? The problem with it is there's no evidence in the, in the synoptics for that. Some would say it means this, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Now, Peter has said before, Lord, you know, I don't care what the others are going to do. I will lay down my life for you. He says that in John's gospel in 13th chapter. In Matthew, the 26th chapter, he says, even though all fall away, you know, even if Andrew falls away and even if John falls away, I won't do it. I won't fall away. I will never fail you. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. You know, do do you love me more than the other disciples love me? I don't think that Peter has any suggestion in his heart that he is better than the others. After all, he's denied the Lord three times. How could he feel superior in any way? If anything, he feels like a miserable failure, unworthy of leadership, and he needs restoration. My opinion is this. Jesus was simply asking Peter, how much do you love me? Is there anything that stands between you and me? Any of these things? And he's calling him back to the hard call of discipleship. No thing, even family, should stand between us. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And he's encouraging people, Peter, to go back to that commitment. You see, Jesus was preparing Peter for a commissioning that was about to come. He was preparing him that he was going to require more of him. A higher level of love, more than phileo, moving toward agapao. A further reaching influence beyond a clique of six or seven people, and even beyond the eleven Defeat all God's sheep. More required of him, a broader scope of ministry. More than just fishing for men, now he is going to help build a kingdom by nurturing the flock. A deeper level of commitment, more than feeding, moving to shepherding. There are two or three quick things I'd like to observe from this text, based on those interpretive principles. First is, Jesus calls us. He calls us, Yes, to be fishers of men, but he also calls us to feed the flock. Jesus calls us to feed, not just fish. Okay? Secondly, always, always, forever, he calls us to feed the sheep. Literally and spiritually to feed the sheep. And then finally, above all. Above all else, I think this passage is saying we need to grow in love with Jesus. We don't need just to fall in love with Jesus. We need to grow in love with and for Jesus. Jesus calls us to feed, not just to fish. You see, the big picture here is 
Jesus is about to give Peter a further calling. He called him first as a Galilean fisherman on the seashore, literally fishing for fish. And he called him to be what? A fisher of men. And now he's moving him to a broader and a bigger portfolio. It still includes seeking and saving the lost. It still includes fishing for men. But now it is beyond that to feed not just the lambs, not just to feed those that are not believers and and new Christians, but also to nurture the flock and to shepherd them. You see, this is part of John's great commission. The great commission begins with Mark's preach the gospel. We've seen that. It's supported by Luke's bear witness to me, and it builds on Matthew's make disciples. The Johannine commission that we're talking about here really builds on all of that. Behind closed doors, he has said, as I have been sent by the Father, so send I you. And now he tells them what to do. And implied in that is Matthew's commission to do what? Make disciples, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And this shepherding builds on that. This shepherding extends beyond teaching. Making disciples is more than baptizing, and it's more than teaching. Making disciples involves what Jesus is telling Peter to do now, and that is to shepherd the flock, nurture the flock, tend the flock, guide the flock, guard the flock. Peter, I'm calling you to be a shepherd and not just a fisherman. And Peter later gives witness of this himself. In his first epistle, then he talks about this to the elders, and he tells them to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Paul affirms this to the Ephesian elders as he's on his way back to Jerusalem on the third missionary tour. Be on guard, he says, for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. We are called, friends, In his great commission, yes, to seek and save the lost. We are called, yes, to teach those then that come into the flock. Beyond that, we're called to shepherd them and to nurture them and to guard them and to guide them as well. There's a second point. Always, always, forever feed the sheep. Look at the progression of Jesus' thought. If you love me, feed, literally, my little lambs. With the lost, we feed them the word of God, the simple gospel. And new believers, we simply feed them God's word. And then he says, if you love me, shepherd my sheep. Those are the grazing sheep. Those are the ones that are maturing. And with all the flock, including the lambs, we nurture, tend, guide, and protect. And then even if we haven't grown into the agape love of God quite yet, if you love me even like a brother, simply do this. Feed my sheep. That is literally feed my sheep. Always continue giving them the pure word of God to the whole flock. New Christians need the pure word of God that is like milk, but also mature Christians do too, young and old alike. In other words, and this is an important point, shepherding. This idea of shepherding that he's talking about to Peter never means that it replaces feeding. You see, there's no substitute for basic feeding. It's rudimentary and essential. 
We cannot shepherd the flock. You cannot help to shepherd the flock in teaching unless we go back to the basic Word of God. It's not enough to build a good and strong sheepfold, friends. It's not enough. It's not enough to protect the sheep from the robbers and the thieves that come in, although we do that. It's not enough to care for all the sheep's basic needs. If we neglect the very simple act of feeding the lambs, going back, feeding them the pure word of God, we starve the flock to death. Mature sheep never get past needing to be fed like lambs. Peter says then in his second chapter of his first letter, like newborn babies, hmm, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. Shepherds, shepherds who call themselves shepherds who never feed the flock the word of God. Shepherds who avoid or get beyond somehow the need for feeding the pure word of God to the flock, those kinds of shepherds become simply social workers. Now there's need for social work, even in the church, but it goes far beyond that. And a sure sign of false shepherds is malnourished sheep. Sheep that are starving and malnourished because they don't get the word of God. Shepherds who stop feeding the pure and true word of God to their flock. And this isn't just the pastor, friend. It's Sunday school teachers. It's small group. It's when you have a relationship with somebody whom you're mentoring. It always must include feeding the pure word of God. The problem with it is today, false shepherds have come to twist the word for their own agendas. They don't feed the flock the pure word of God. And as you heard me last week, they don't feed the sheep. They fleece the sheep. They rely on human traditions and legalism to imprison the sheep. And Jesus looked at them and he said, you are blind guides leading the blind. Yes, we need to go beyond milk. We know that. Paul reminded the immature Christian church, we need to eat on meat. The author of Hebrews said the same thing. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. We need to move on to meat, but we never, ever stop drinking the pure milk of the Word of God. You see, the goal of feeding the sheep is to mature them into growing in righteousness and love, and love. And that's my last point. Above all, I think one thing that Jesus is saying to Peter here is, above all, you need to grow in love with me. Hmm. Look at the progression of Jesus' thought. His three questions really mean this. Do you love me? Do you really love me? Do you really, really love me? And Peter doesn't quite get it. You see, Jesus knew Peter's heart. He knew where he was. He knew him inside out. He knew Peter better than Peter did. And Jesus is showing Peter something. Twice he's asked him, do you love me like God loves? And Peter has responded short of that. I love you like a brother. But Jesus knew that. And he doesn't rebuke Peter for it. You see, what he does, as he does with us, is he meets us where we are. Hmm. He knows that we fall short there. And yet he still commissioned Peter. He still gave him confidence. He still gave him the task of feeding the sheep. You see, what he knew was that Peter would grow in love with him. It's not that Peter didn't love him. 
but he was growing in love with him. And he would grow in love with Jesus as he continued to serve Jesus. Let me make a pretty brash statement. I mean, I know it's true of me. Now, you may, you may not say it's true of you, but I'm going to make a categorical statement here. None of us, not a single one of us, loves Jesus like we should. We talk about loving Jesus, but often our love for Jesus falls short of agapao. And we shouldn't fault Peter for this. You see, it's human nature. We all fall short. You see, we cannot purely love as God loves because only God is love. We can begin to move toward that because he enables us to do so. When we're saved, we begin to fall in love with Jesus. Through conversion and gratitude for our salvation, we begin to love him. And through the Holy Spirit transforming our soul and connecting us with the Father, we then begin to grow in love. But folks, we all fall short of it. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I hear people singing about how much they love Jesus, I feel guilty because I don't feel like I've gotten there. You see, we're all works in progress. This isn't just learning about Jesus. It's not just growing in Him, although it is those two things. It's also about learning and experiencing the growth of loving Him. You see, God's imperative of love. What's He said several times through Jesus? Four times He's given the command to love. Love God with all your what? With all your being. Love who else? Your neighbor as yourself. Love who else? Love one another. And then the really difficult one in the Sermon on the Mount, love your what? Your enemies. And in each one of those, he uses the word agapao. Hmm. Wow. And we fall short in all of those areas. Here's a principle I think that's important for us to take away from the passage. Yes, we should demonstrate our love for God by loving others. Hmm. More than just showing brotherly love, you know, Jesus says this, you know, everybody loves their brother, everybody loves their family. But if you learn to love your enemy, that's what I'm calling you to do. That's agapao, love. The problem is we all fall short, I think. But God understands. God understands. He looks at you like Jesus looked at Peter. And he accepts this fact that the best that we can do often is a real strong phileo love. But he and his Holy Spirit are constantly at work, working out the agape love in us. And he gives us four witnesses. He gives us his written word that instructs us about how to love him. He gives us a second witness, his Holy Spirit in Christ's presence. And they stretch our capacity to love God. And then he gives us the church. And when we see in other believers a, a, a hint, a glimmer, a flicker of that witness, occasionally we will see another believer actually expressing the agape love of God in its purest form for just a moment. And it inspires us. And then there's a fourth witness, and that's ministry. The fourth witness is shepherding. He calls each of us in some way to shepherd somebody. And how does this work? How does this work? You see, what happens is when God calls us to shepherd somebody, our group, we look at them and we recognize the image of God in them, the imago Dei, 
we see it in the soul of their being. And, and we realize that God is their father, too. And that God loves them with an agape love. And then we see Christ peering out through them. They may not know that Christ is at work in them. And we see the least of these. And God God calls us to minister to Christ in them by serving them. And then we respond through the Holy Spirit. We're prompted by love. And he moves us to a kind of agape love. Even for the least of these. Even for our enemies, we see the image of God in them, and he draws us to love them like the Father loves them. And the result is is this, folks. I think this ministry of shepherding then causes us to fall in greater love with Jesus. Because as we love those people, we love him. Inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of one of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. And that's how we then grow in love with Christ. So let me summarize. Jesus commissions us here in this passage to be both fishermen and shepherds. He encourages us to build his kingdom by doing what? Yes, teaching and baptizing, but by shepherding the flock. He challenges us. Stay focused. Stay focused. Never use the word shepherding for excuse not to feed the sheep. Always feed the sheep with God's word. And above all, above all else, Jesus invites us. And I think that this is really the ultimate purpose of the passage. He invites us to grow in love with him and to increase in our love for him. Would you pray with me? Father, what a great privilege it is that you commission us as disciples of your son, Jesus Christ, to shepherd. It's not just the preacher. It's not just the people on staff. But there's someone in our life that you have called a shepherd to nurture, to guide, to feed, to protect. Don't know who it is, but help us to take that responsibility seriously. Never getting away from feeding the word. And using it as an opportunity to get to know you better and to love you more deeply. Our prayer is this morning that if there is someone who has heard this word and has not met the great shepherd, the great shepherd of our souls, Jesus Christ, I want that person to know that he loves that person. This morning, if you're listening and you are distressed and dispirited and cast down, God loves you. And his son, Jesus Christ, loves you as a shepherd, and he wants to feed you and nurture you and guide you, and he wants to give you eternal life. He laid down his life on the cross and died for your sin. He purchased you from sin and death, and he offers the invitation this morning, come, follow me. Come, walk with me. Come, I've prepared a place for you in my Father's house. And if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. If you believe in me, when you pass from this mortal coil, your mortality will put on immortality and your corruptibility will put on incorruptibility and you will be transformed and invited and welcomed into his kingdom forever and ever. My prayer is that you will make that decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.